Well, hello, everyone, and welcome to our latest podcast for the Junior Faculty Development Program. My name is Anthony Porto, Associate Professor in Pediatric Gastroenterology and Vice Chair for Ambulatory Operations in Pediatrics. And my name is Jaspreet Loyal, a pediatric hospitalist and assistant professor in the Department of Pediatrics. And I'm Kathleen Corbin from Pediatric Rheumatology, an instructor in the Department of Pediatrics. The topic of today's session is on medical education with a focus on how junior faculty can optimize their teaching role and think about opportunities for their own professional development. Our objectives for this session are the following. By the end of this session, participants will be able to recognize the changing landscape of medical education and unique challenges faced by junior faculty, begin to incorporate two to three learner-centered teaching strategies into their respective clinical areas, identify opportunities in medical education at the medical school, and learn how to increase the number of teaching evaluations into their academic portfolio. We'd like to welcome our featured speaker for this session, Eve Colson. Eve is a professor in pediatrics and an accomplished researcher with a national reputation in many things, most notably in the field of infant sleep practices. Over the course of many years, Eve has established herself as an experienced medical educator, and one of her current roles is as co-director of the Pediatric Clerkships for Yale Medical Students. Welcome, Eve. Thank you. So let's get started. So you have successfully climbed the academic ladder and are now an accomplished researcher, educator, and clinician. Reflect on your experience as a junior faculty at Yale in your early years in academic medicine. Tell us, how did you establish your career path? Well, thank you for that kind introduction. I would say that um, for me, establishing the career path was not necessarily fully intentional. And by that, I mean that I came across some opportunities and I went with those opportunities and a lot of times what I did, I often say, was what I was passionate about, and also I was lucky enough to have that lead to a successful career and promotion. When I first came to Yale, I was offered a job straight out of fellowship as the director of the Well Newborn Nursery. My fellowship had been in general academic pediatrics and research, and I wasn't necessarily imagining myself as the director of a nursery. But when this became available at Yale and I was able to get very good mentoring, I embraced the opportunity and looked at it as as a chance to expand my research interests in health promotion and disease prevention. So from there, I just worked to make things better for the families that I was taking care of and also for the staff I was working with. And at the same time, I had opportunities to mentor and work with residents as well as students. So all of that combined was a wonderful opportunity for me to be successful and to move things forward. And Eve, can you talk a little bit about how you you started your research? I know that being in the newborn nursery was key for the projects that kind of started there, but but you embody this really nice concept of really taking your clinical work and turning it into something scholarly. So as the medical director for the nursery, I took very seriously our outcomes and how we were doing and the kind of care that we were providing. Interestingly, at that point, it wasn't considered quality and safety work, but now perhaps would be considered that. And I collaborated with 
some of the uh, staff and in particular one of the managing nurses to try to understand better why it was that we weren't following the AAP recommendations by placing infants on their back to sleep and role modeling the safe sleep um, recommendations from the American Academy of Pediatrics. So I started with a very simple project that actually received no funding just to see if we could change what staff was doing regarding infant sleep practices in the in the nursery by teaching different teaching the recommendations and also modeling the recommendations and then seeing if families would follow suit. So it was a very simple, not expensive project that led to better outcomes for families. From your perspective, how have things changed for junior junior faculty in the past few years with respect to professional development and trainee education? So I think things have have changed quite a bit for junior faculty now because of this sense that um, generating income is very, very important for the well-being of the academic medical center. So while we do have three missions, clinical work, research, and education, it really is at this point the clinical work that is supporting the other two missions. And so there is a fair amount of pressure on faculty to make sure that they see enough patients and that they generate enough income. And along with that, we've now transitioned to the electronic medical record, which in some ways has been very helpful to people, but in other ways it's very time-consuming. We spend a lot of our time, rather than with our patients or pursuing interesting research projects, we spend our time entering data into the medical record. The medical record was designed to capture billing, and it's not at this point particularly user-friendly to faculty. And we do know that here at Yale, with some studies that have been done on our own faculty, that we have about a 60% rate of burnout for all the faculty who are working for Yale Medicine, and it's worse among the junior faculty. And some of that has to do with their inability to do some of the things that they really love to do, including educating, and also with struggling with the electronic medical record and how much time that takes. Were you surprised by those findings about burnout? So I was yes and no. Uh, I I see it all the time. I mentor people. I certainly have to deal with the electronic medical record myself. Um, And so it doesn't completely surprise me. We're in an important time of transition. Our healthcare system is struggling in general. And it's not too surprising that we're feeling this at the academic medical center. We used to be a place where we could do a lot more teaching. And that's why often people stayed at the academic medical centers to be able to do education and teaching and research. It's a lot harder now. I mean, I think one of the other things that I think comes up also is the change in the landscape of healthcare, but also a lot of the faculty who are recruited here, like myself, were recruited to do and be in satellite offices. And I remember meeting you about three years after I was here. And I, how, how would you, what challenges do you think face those faculty who are offsite? And how do you think they can overcome some of those to be part of education? Yeah, I think that's a great question, and that's going to become more and more of an issue about faculty not being all in the same place. So when I first came to the Department of Pediatrics at Yale, it was a relatively small department. We all knew each other. When there were faculty meetings, the room was full of all of us. Now, a lot of people have to stream in because they're they're at different sites. And so it really changes the nature of the relationships that you can have. 
So what I recommend is just trying to identify and connect with a mentor or mentors who can really help you to move your projects forward and can help you very, very early on think about what you want to do and where you want to head so that you can start planning. This happened much more easily for me because we weren't so scattered. But now with people being scattered, you have to be much more planful and mindful about it. So Eve, you you touched on some of the challenges that are facing junior faculty um, in this day and age. Can you uh, focus in on some specific challenges, specifically, um, or some uh, some I guess solutions to some of these challenges, like the electronic medical record um, and this need to balance clinical productivity with teaching trainees in various settings. Yes, this is an interesting and important question to think about how do you teach in this new environment. And I have to say I don't have all the answers for this because things are just so much in flux and because this is relatively new and because of the burnout rate, it's hard to imagine how to put more on people's plate. So I think the thing to do is to recognize what the barriers are and to think about how we might be able to get around them. So it's very, very much dependent on your sites. So one thing that we might do, for example, for medical students and residents is that we might actually encourage them to travel away from the central location out to some of the other clinical sites. Because for some people, for some attendings, it's actually easier and more fun to teach in your away sites because they're not quite as busy, because there's not a glut of trainees, and because you might have a little bit more flexibility in the teaching and your approach. So that's one thing. Another thing that can be done, and what I've done, and somebody else came up with this idea, this was not my idea, but I have to say it's really changed things for me, is that I've actually taken over some of the documentation of the residents that I work with. So I now play the scribe. Now that may seem silly for me after working on the faculty almost 20 years with all this experience to be the typist, but on the other hand, it actually gives me lots of opportunities. So when I type, I actually have to listen very closely to what the trainee is saying because otherwise I can't enter the correct information. It also gives me constant access to the chart. So if I realize there's something missing, I can look look it up. We can talk about it right then and there so it saves time. Plus the fact that by the end of the conversation, my note is done because otherwise I would have to wait for the resident to complete the note and then send it to me later in the day, sometimes at night, and sometimes I would be up at midnight still completing charts. So this is a win-win for all. I think that the that the residents still get a really good opportunity to learn how to use the medic, electronic medical record. Just because I'm doing some of their notes for them doesn't mean that they don't have plenty of opportunity to learn how to do it. And they seem to be very grateful for for this approach. So those are just some of the things I think you have to be creative in your setting. You have to figure out what works for you. I think planning ahead of time with your trainees um, so that everybody's goals are met is another thing to think about. Those are some really great ideas. Um, Could you give us some specific examples for specific scenarios, additional scenarios? Um, For example, family-centered rounds in the nursery, how to teach in that situation? Yeah, so with family-centered rounds in the nursery, 
this is uh, we we make we plan uh, ahead of time. We uh, go into the room, and again, I allow the trainees, whether it's a student or the intern that I'm working with, to really lead the discussion with the families. And at the same time, we're not quote wasting time in the sense that I'm watching, I'm scribing, and um, and it, it really is directed toward the family and toward the trainees. So then we are able to allow them to practice this interaction with families, and I can give them feedback both before and after. I also start on the first day, if a trainee hasn't been there before, by modeling how I think things should go, and then we discuss it afterwards so that when we get to the next family, they're prepared to try it themselves. So they have the supervision, they have the instruction, uh, and then uh, they have the opportunity to practice. But in addition, I want to make sure that they're learning some very specific content. And so in my mind, and also uh, Jespreet has developed a wonderful curriculum for the well-newborn nursery, so we know what their students and residents should be getting out of it. So when those topics come up, we talk about them out of the room as we're walking to the next room. Of course, mindful of, of patient confidentiality. But so, for example, uh, if a, if group B strep positivity is a topic that came up, up in that room, then we may talk about that as a topic as we're walking to the next room and how to manage mothers, uh, infants whose mothers were group B strep positive. We, I'd say that we have one pearl per room. So the pearl could be about the content, group B strep, or some other issue in the nursery, or it could be about managing um, relationships with patients. I just wanted to mention, I think it's a really important point about bite-sized pieces of of learning and education because I remember when I started five years ago in the nursery, there would be time at the end of rounds to sit down and talk about something for 15 or 20 minutes, and that just doesn't happen anymore. Um, So incorporating the teaching into rounds, I think, is a great strategy that I've learned from you, Eve, um, that I think junior faculty can incorporate into their existing clinical settings. I agree. I mean, I, I... as an attending in GI, we, we rotate in the outpatient fellows clinic, and the feedback we get from the fellows is that the five-minute talk on the a topic that was related to the patient we just saw is is a much more effective way of teaching for them, for, for much more effective for, way for them to learn than is an hour lecture on that topic, because it really, I think, reemphasizes the point and really gives them that the couple pieces of data that they need. So I, I think that's a great point. And it actually goes along with education theory. People learn better in, generally speaking, when it's relevant to what they're doing and also when it's experiential. So while we might mourn the loss of chunks of time to teach, we can pick up the difference by doing it while we're seeing patients. And in fact, some of the times you can even engage families to teach the trainees so I try to do that as well. Sometimes the families know a lot about the um, issue that the, 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 the patient might have. Um, they can also, um, I sometimes ask them when, for example, giving anticipatory guidance, I, give, I let the family say, uh, head, know ahead of time, please watch how this trainee is doing the guidance because at the end we're going to be asking you how they did and whether you have any good feedback for them. So I've had families who have, most of the families are very, very excited to help. I have never had a family say, no, I don't want to help. They often wish the trainees luck in their training. And they often give incredibly good and useful tips about how they 
how they experienced the time with the trainee. I think I just wanted to bring up another point just to reiterate what you mentioned. Um, one of the nice ways that we have the luxury in the, in the nursery with trainees is direct observation, and we can give them feedback and on communication as well as content. And that's something I think is a, another strategy that people can incorporate. And also along the lines of what you said a little bit earlier, Jasper, you had said um, bite-sized pieces. So I don't think junior faculty should feel that they need to go into the room and watch an entire history or entire physical. That's one thing. So you can watch a little bit of what someone does, or they can give you an oral presentation. And in an oral presentation, you'll learn about what kinds of questions they asked. You'll learn about their clinical reasoning. So you should not feel that you have to spend a tremendous amount of time watching a trainee in order to give them really important and good feedback. So that's just something that in this day and age, I think going into the room and spending an hour watching somebody do a full history and physical just doesn't really exist. And that's that's really helpful because I think sometimes what happens during clinic experiences or inpatient, you feel like you're rushed to go on to the next patient or you don't want the patients to wait. And you – but you, there is that moment that you can probably make that wouldn't really take much time but still get things accomplished. And Anthony, sometimes we, we notice things, but we don't realize how important they are. And if we just sort of reflect upon, oh, that student didn't wash their hands when they went into the room, or that student didn't knock on the door and say, may I come in? And they may seem like very small things, but a lot of the process things that we do notice, but don't realize that they should be part of our feedback. So even if you're working with somebody for one session, you can notice a tremendous amount about their style, their knowledge, without working too hard for that. Great. Now, how, I mean, I participate in LC, which, you know, which you run, and what other, what are ways that junior faculty can get involved with teaching medical students? Yeah, so there are so many different options for teaching medical students. So our medical students, obviously, they have the first through the fourth year. Some of them elect to take an extra year often when they can do research. So it is a wonderful opportunity to mentor, and they can be very, very helpful in you with your projects. And I've done that many, many times. They're an extra hand. Um, they can often work a whole summer with you, even a whole year with you, and can be wonderful research associates. And there is funding for them. So education projects, small projects in your area. So if you want some help that's um, cost efficient, they're great, and they really love mentoring. So that's one thing. In the clinical setting, um, there's the third year and the fourth year. In the third year, our uh, students rotate in most of these settings, in most of your settings. And so I would just recommend um, help, uh, working with them. And if you evaluate them, they evaluate you. So it's a nice way to get feedback about and accumulate evaluations when you for when you come up for promotion. And I think we're going to talk a little bit more about that later. Then in the first 18 months, our medical school is 18 months prior to the primary clinical year. There are all sorts of opportunities. They can be clinically oriented, like the interprofessional longitudinal experience, where you have a, a relationship working with a group of students over an entire year, and you get to know that team. If you're interested in teaching things about basic science, there are many opportunities to become involved in the master courses. Um, we have a particular presence in the last master course, which is a across the lifespan, where they're very interested in learning about the physiology of children and about development and growth. And um, 
the the thing to do is just to uh, ask me or ask who, whoever the clerkship director is um, what, where you might be able to get involved. And I am quite sure that there will be a place to go for you, because depending upon your interest. Anthony, you mentioned the LCE, but I wasn't sure if, if all of our listeners know what that is. So it's it's now called the ILCE, and it's the Interprofessional Longitudinal Clinical Experience. And for some people who are listening, you may remember when you were a medical student that it's also often known as the doctoring program. Um, and this is the opportunity that students have to officially go out into the clinical setting to learn their clinical skills. So they learn a bit about history taking, a bit about um, physical exam. And this is sort of where they're practicing what they're already learning in the clinical skills course that's currently taught by Dr. Tallwalker. In that course, the clinical skills course, you can teach, help teach physical exam. You can help teach history taking per uh, Dr. August Fortin's techniques. Or you can, and or you could be with this group of students in your clinical setting um, to try to give them the opportunity to practice those skills. I think one of the cool things about this program, too, is that it's interprofessional. So we have first-year students from the Yale School of Nursing, their APRN students, the PA program, and the medical school, because we want the students to learn with, from, and about each other so that it's not a mystery when they go off to residency and beyond. They realize that there are other healthcare providers who are going to be part of their team. And this is a little taste of learning about what, where those, what the curriculum is like for those healthcare providers. And it may sound silly, but even something so simple as the fact that the history is the history and the physical is the physical for all three schools. That's great. So um, just shifting gears a little bit, Eve, a lot of us choose academic medicine because we enjoy teaching. However, sometimes it feels like from a promotions perspective, the focus is on scholarly activity. So Tell us from your perspective, why is it important for junior faculty to engage with trainees? And do you feel that, or or what advice do you have for junior faculty who feel that they should be spending more of their time focusing on the scholarly piece for the promotions piece? Yeah. So scholarship versus teaching. Um, I don't think there has to be one or the other. And what I would say is it is important what track you're interested in. So if you are entering the clinician educator track, there is no doubt that you have to be able to document that you are teaching and get feedback, be able to bring forward the the feedback that you've gotten on that teaching. And there's an expectation in the promotions process that there will be a lot of, of evidence that you have been teaching and that you are a good teacher. So that's very important for that track. It's actually important for all the tracks that that, uh, people teach. And even when people are in a different, um, less education-focused track, there's an expectation that there will be, uh, that you will teach some of the courses or mentor students or something along those lines. Because again, it's one of the missions of the Academic Medical Center is education. And there's an expectation that everyone will participate in that. It's very important for you to know something that I didn't know, which is that really you should take upon yourself the responsibility of figuring out where your evaluations are housed and if you're actually getting evaluations. So for example, for anybody who does the didactic sessions for the third year medical students, we have lots of evaluations for you because 
the students, every time that you speak, they evaluate you. So if you speak to 15 students, you're going to have 15 evaluations on that day. We'll get those evaluations back to you as feedback, and the next time you'll come, you'll come with those evaluations in mind. So you will quickly accumulate evaluations. Uh, however, in some activities where you teach, it may not be that there's a systematic way of capturing that. So I strongly recommend that you actually come with your own survey, an electronic survey, to get feedback. That feedback is just as valid as if I collected the feedback, and you can keep track of it and store it for yourself. So you could use things like Qualtrics or SurveyMonkey or whatever it is that you prefer and have the students do it right then and there. I think giving feedback, what I call just-in-time feedback, is the best way to get it. So rather than sending them a link two days later or even later that day, if you give some time during your talk, right afterward, if you space it so that if you were given an hour that you actually take 50 minutes, you ask them to go online and you give them a link and ask them to please complete this evaluation before they leave, trainees are usually very happy to get it and you get a lot of an excellent response rate that way. So just-in-time feedback for you, for your sessions, they're also going to remember a lot more detail if it was right then and there. Could you give us um, some more detail about what should be in those evaluations and also Mm -hmm. why we need them? What happens with that data? Is it the numbers or is it the content of the evaluations that are sort of used to assess us as junior faculty? Yeah. So right now, at this very moment, there really is no absolute way in which they need to look. So that may change as the clinician educator track is more defined, and it may be that there will be very specific evaluations that you will need to use. But right now, it really is up to you to decide how you want to design it. What generally just the basics are, it's good to have a Likert scale. doesn't really matter whether it's five points or seven points, but just a clear Likert scale, you know, this, this talk was terrible, this talk was great. And so that you can, you can also just a number that you can go with. I, but, and I think that the comments are probably the most important thing. I would still have a number, but the comments are really important. And it could be as simple as, what did you like about this talk? What would you want me to change for the next time? It doesn't have to be complicated. If you have something very specific that you're after, you certainly could add other questions. If you're experimenting with a certain kind of um, design or a certain kind of approach to your education. You're not sure if it works. You could specifically ask about that. I encourage experimentation. It may it may mean that your scores wouldn't be as high, but if you have lots and lots and lots of scores and you specifically say you're experimenting, that's great. Um, trying different things out. And then getting feedback on it as quickly as possible. I also recommend that you do this when you travel. So when you give grand rounds or you're asked to give sp- talks elsewhere, it's many places don't automatically have a survey for you. So you can put up your survey, you can put up your link at the bottom, and you can ask for feedback. And many people will be happy to do that. And they're happier to do it if it doesn't land in their email, and they can do it right then and there. So going back to kind of the promotions piece, how much of, for so for someone on the clinician educator track, how much of their um, portfolio or their application Um, is weighed based on their teaching evaluations? So, again, there's there's a little bit of change going on with the clinician educator track. But in my mind, the evaluations by trainees and others, colleagues, is not going to go away. It's probably going to be more. The, The ultimate thought is that you're going to be a master teacher if you're in a master educator, if you're in the clinician educator track. 
Scholarship is still very important in that. Taking a scholarly approach is really what I would talk about. And that's a whole other talk when you think about what is what does scholarship mean when you talk about clinician educators. Um, there is, the, of course, the, the scholarship of discovery, which is the typical research approach. But there are also other ways to be scholarly in the way in which you approach things as a clinician educator. And the good news is, is that I really think the school is, is taking that seriously and building some really good definitions so that faculty will know what is required. These evaluations for medical students, fellows, all tra- types of trainees as well, do parent evaluations make a difference? How do, or are there pediatricians? Like how does that work? Yeah, great question. So I would say that those are a little different unless you're educating parents. So if you're thinking about the, your, your teaching skills um, rather than your, your interactions with people. So, so they are a little bit overlapping, but I would say, so for example, Press Ganey, I don't know if that's what you're referring to, but that's sort of a little different than actually trainees evaluate how you educate. On the other hand, if you run a session for families about a topic um, that you specialize in, then that is education. And so I would say, yes, get feedback. And if you're doing it online, if you're – there's a couple faculty members who have blogs that families participate in. Those are all really important ways in which to – you're teaching, you're available, you're an expert. Those are ways in which to show that. Um, if you're teaching colleagues like Grand Rounds or uh, any other sessions that you're doing with, with a colleague or elsewhere or here, they're all fair game for evaluating your teaching skills. Okay, great. Eve, thank you so much. If other junior faculty have more specific questions, is there a best way to contact you? Yeah, sure, absolutely. So I'm happy to talk to anybody. Um, and my email is eve.colson at yale.edu. And you can just send me an email and we'll get together. Great. I'd like to thank Eve for coming today. Thank you so much. This has been very helpful to me and I think everyone who's listening. And thank you so much for your time. It was a pleasure. Thank you for inviting me. Great.